Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi there. Before we get to the next episode, I wanted to share with you that we surpassed 3,000 downloads over the weekend. I'm personally exceptionally proud of this fact, I wanted to thank each and every one of you for taking an interest in the podcast. There are literally millions of podcasts out there, so I appreciate that you have chosen to give this one so much of your valuable time. Rest assured that I don't take your time lightly, and will do my best to bring you relevant and interesting content about the true nature of war. To help get the word out there, but also to get to know our audience better, I would be grateful if you could share today's episode, or any episode that you've particularly enjoyed, with two friends who'd enjoy the content, or with two guests you'd like to hear on the show. Please tag the show using the handle at The Voices of War on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn so that I can say hi. And now, back to the show. My guest today is Professor Shannon E. French from the Case Western Reserve University, where she's also the Inamori Professor in Ethics and the Director of the Inamori International Center for Ethics and Excellence. Prior to her current role, She taught for 11 years at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, where she was a tenured member of the Ethics Department and Associate Chair of the Division of Leadership, Ethics and Law. Shannon's primary research field is military ethics, with a special focus on conduct of war issues, ethical leadership, command climate, sacrifice and responsibility, warrior transition, ethical responses to terrorism, the future of warfare, the emerging military technology, including artificial intelligence. Her publications include The Code of the Warrior, exploring warrior values past and present, which we will discuss today, as well as a number of edited volumes, book chapters, and peer-reviewed articles on military ethics. It would be an understatement to say that Shannon's work has had a a tremendous impact in the field of military ethics, and among her many accolades, she was named the General Hugh Sheldon Distinguished Chair in Ethics by the U.S. Army Commander General Staff College Foundation in 2017 and was in 2019 a distinguished speaker at the British government's official event to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the signing of the Geneva Conventions. She was also the keynote speaker for the US Army Ethics Symposium, was a plenary speaker at the McCain Conference, and delivered named addresses at both the US Army War College and the Marine Corps Base Quantico, where her book, Dakota Warrior, is required reading for officer candidates. Shannon, I know this is merely a snapshot of your extensive career and contributions in the field of military ethics, uh, so I'll provide a link to your full bio in the notes, and also hope to touch on some of uh, some other dimensions of your experience during our conversation. Uh, but nonetheless, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So b- before we delve into the uh, murky waters uh, of <laughs> the code of the warrior, uh, maybe we can start with... Uh, Oh, I don't know, maybe a simple question. Uh, why this field? What uh, what motivated you to get entangled uh, uh, in this particular field? You would be surprised or perhaps not at all how often I get that question. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I don't in particular come from a military family myself, although I do have an uncle who uh, served with honor in Vietnam. But uh, In fact, the way I came to the field of military ethics has to do with my background in philosophy. I came up in very traditional philosophical education, and in my graduate work at Brown University, I became really 
consumed with questions around people doing the right thing when self-interest and morality appear to conflict. So when the stakes are tremendously high and doing the right thing doesn't always turn out well for you and what's going on there and what happens. And as you could also imagine, when I started to look into examples of that, quite a lot of them were in the context of conflicts. So I started to recognize that this interesting area that involved sacrifice and heroism, but that happening alongside horrible acts of inhumanity and atrocities, was was a fascinating snapshot of human nature, perhaps at its most raw. And as an ethicist, this was very, very compelling. So when I saw the uh, job opportunity arise at the Naval Academy, and this is back in 1997, I uh, jumped at it and was uh, just thrilled to get that position. And I was there for over a decade. I learned so much and uh, gained so much perspective. And I must say also, it, it was an experience that brought with it some pain as well in that uh, the time that I happened to be teaching at the Naval Academy, working through these very, very urgent, very important questions with my students that they would then go out and live as military officers was the time that included the 9-11 attacks, Mm. the launch of uh, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, All of those started at that time when I was teaching there. I lost students. I lost colleagues. And that includes, by the way, not only losses as in those who were killed in combat, but also some suicides. Mm. So all of that has had a profound effect on me as an ethicist. And while I no longer teach at the Naval Academy, I still have, of course, many friends and connections there. Uh, at Case Western Reserve University, I actually launched the first in our country, in the United States, uh, master's degree program in military ethics, because I do still feel that these topics are so important that we need more people working in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, and particularly in this uh, murky world of uh, the war on terrorism and what that even means and how that uh, how, th- how that's even defined. Um so while you were working, uh, training future officers, is this where you realize that there's something that we might call the, co- the code of the warrior? Or was this something that you brought to, to, I guess, to the party? I think it's a little bit of both in the sense that as I was working with these uh, men and women who, again, were, as it turned out, going to be swept into this uh, global war on terror almost immediately after graduation. As I was working with them, I found that a lot of their questions that they had around their ethical obligations were not easily answered by the existing laws and rules of war alone, that they were interested in areas that touched into moral psychology, that touched into the emotions of war and what a legacy they were joining, what what kind of a history they were joining. In a sense, they wanted to know if they were the first people who ever felt this way or were having these concerns, uh, both then and what they would ultimately face. 
And so I found myself as someone who'd always had also a, a very strong interest in, in, in history and in the classics, reaching back and looking through different cultures and their writings about war and their expressions of what it was to, to live that experience to see if there was a common thread I could pull that would give some helpful information to mm. these people in front of me. And so what I, what I found myself discovering uh, was this notion that no matter how different these cultures were, they all had the notion that if you were going to be part of this particular group of defenders of your community, if you were going to be given that burden and that responsibility, and in some ways also that privilege, it often did come with a, quite a lot of privileges, mm. and um, and all of that were to come to you, then there had to be a very unique identity connected to that that had certain lines in it that you could never cross. And it was fascinating to look at the concepts of honor and dishonor in each of these cultures, which again varied, but the common themes had to do with the commitments they made to one another, the ways they distinguished themselves from other people who took lives. And most importantly, in that area, how they distinguished themselves from mere murderers. Mm. So that that was a really strong point that just came blazing through to me as I did this research, and I wanted to share that with my students. So I, I taught a course called The Code of the Warrior, and it was the book evolved out of teaching that course, and I kept adding cultures as I studied and learned more about them. And I was drawing, I was doing the research at that time, but also drawing on um, my um education up to then, because in addition to philosophy, I had studied history and classics. So mm -hmm. I was pulling on all of those. Um, I'm a big believer in interdisciplinary work and, uh, and just uh, reading everything I could get my hands on to try to, to make that point that it really mattered throughout history and across the globe, around the globe, to all of these different people in these different, but in some ways, so similar situations mm. to be able to say what, what I'm doing here is different than what a mere murderer does. Mm. Yeah. And I think that really echoes through the book and I, and I can't compliment the book enough. Uh, I think, uh, oh. in fact, <laughs> I'm not surprised that it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's required reading, uh, for the Marine Corps base. Uh, and I'm, I'm surprised it's not for us, but I suspect that, uh, uh, once enough people read it, I think it, uh, it will become, become so particularly because you cover some very dear and close to many people's hearts, um, cultures, but also some that, uh, uh, you know, we, tend to view particularly in the kind of current climate as despicable uh, so you know you go from from rome through the vikings uh, of course you go to chinese warrior monks but then you also talk about uh, islamic uh, warriors which i think uh, was particularly uh, useful and relevant uh, in today's world because we have a tendency to uh, you know our, our own in-group bias uh, tends to bias against the outgroup, uh, and we cast everybody with the same brush uh, which i which i thought was particularly um, important for this uh, for this book 
Thank yeah, you. Sorry, That's very so, kind. <laughs> no, I, 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 and and I also come. I came to this book perhaps with some, uh, some you know, unique self interest because I, I have a particular interest in in taking this study further of of uh, you know use in bellow our conduct uh, in war, which is you know why why I'm particularly excited to be talking to you. Um, <laughs> but one question that I have in particular to that is that it seems to me, and I think you know Walter brought this up and and others in Bellamy and so on uh, that you know this code that you refer to as the code of warrior or that we have, I, I guess, uh, encapsulated into rules engagement, rules of engagement or the Geneva Convention, uh, they come to us from, as you rightly pointed out in your book, tradition and history. And it's nothing, uh, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that there is this uh, code. Is there is there a difference to the code that you have unpacked, the code of the warrior, to, uh, you know, today's rules of engagement in the Geneva Convention? You said that those aren't always enough. Um, what, or maybe maybe I should ask you, what is the difference between those? Absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, you're you're quite correct that the rules of engagement that we tend to use and and things like the Geneva Conventions, the international agreements, especially those that have made their way all the way into norms and law, those are in many ways derived from this long tradition. But the core of the tradition is something that I think no rules could ever capture because it starts with the point I was referencing earlier that there's an identity piece to it. And what I mean by that is that it isn't a matter of if I learn these rules, then I will manage to be an honorable warrior or warfighter. By the way, just a quick side note, some people absolutely hate the term warrior for various reasons, some of mm. which I completely understand because of what it invokes for them. It's very personal how people react to that. And I would simply like to uh, not defend its use, but simply say that you can switch it out with whatever term works better for you. Because I, I think people know once they read the book, the kind of people that I'm talking about, and if they prefer warfighter, if they pr some prefer simple soldier, although <laughs> Marines mm. don't like it if you only say soldier, <laughs> not to mention airmen and so forth. Yeah, we have to account um, for politics. Now we have guardians <laughs> over here. You know, we, we, yeah. we added guardians to our yeah. space force. But anyway, yeah. uh, you know, so with all these different um, subcultures, the, the term may not be right, but the identity is the idea that. I mentioned earlier that the culture has decided that it needs defending mm. and someone in that group is going to be chosen out. And it is sometimes volunteer, but as we all know, sometimes very not voluntary. Mm. Uh, someone will be chosen to be in that role. And what does that mean? You're, you're being told that the rules that you would otherwise live by, like don't take human lives, are suspended for you, but only under certain circumstances and under certain restricted limits. How do you live that? And then once you actually experience killing and war, how do you process that and hold on to your sense of self and, and some of your humanity and all of the things that, that, that you've, that you've clung to and a mere list of rules or restrictions by itself isn't going to do that. There's much more around this notion of knowing that you are part of a community that does have this long tradition, that mm. does have a notion of honor, that has made this choice that we're going to do this because it has to be done, not because we find it fun or we're a bunch of sociopaths or something. It's not, we're doing it because 
we feel an urgency to it. We feel a necessity to it. And we want to survive it, but not at any cost. And so all of that feeds into the notion of, of the code. And I, I, as I mentioned, that there are sharp differences. So if you talk about something like the Viking code, you wouldn't want uh, <laughs> you wouldn't want modern troops going by a lot of what's what's mm. uh, comes across in the code mm. of the Viking warrior, yeah. because they had, for example, some what we would today find rather disturbing notions around uh, the combatant non-combatant distinction. In its essence, and I'm massively oversimplifying here, but in a sense, the uh, the notion was that almost anyone is a combatant if they're either a current or could at some point become a threat to me. Mm. And, you know, that takes you pretty far uh, and ended up in real life, of course, including unarmed Irish monks and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, we don't you don't want to say let's be that. And you don't want to take on the samurai Bushido code and say, this is great. Let's wholesale just readopt that. There are specific things in these codes that are no longer going to work with with our our modern morals but what they have in common are these ideas that there are things you can do that will make you not a good viking anymore that will make you not a good samurai anymore of course in the samurai case it will actually perhaps cause you to have to commit ritual suicide seppuku mm. that there are lines that define your identity and if you give those up either because of what's happening in the particular conflict that you're in or because of other stresses on you or some aspect of your character, you're sacrificing that identity and you will be rejected by that group. And I think that's important that they yeah. in the end are policing themselves. Yeah. And that's a, I think that's a particularly relevant point. And, and I really like this idea of identity because it, it, it implies that it's embodied, it's in, inculcated uh, in, in the person, in, in that chosen identity, that social identity that they uh, are part of when they say wearing the uniform. Where, where it gets a little bit murky for me, and this is perhaps in the future a particular area of interest of my own study, is that, I mean, we know that the environment impacts, you know, the fog of war, fatigue, certain personality traits uh, and so on, desensitization in war and so on, all have an impact or they, they, they can contribute to diminished ethical decision-making, which basically means to me, and, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll refer to Dean Peter Bakers, who I'm sure you, you're, you're, you, you probably know personally anyway. No. Yes, I know him well. Good friend. Okay. They, they, well, I've listened to a podcast that he, where he describes this, uh, this kind of deviation from, let's call it identity or uh, the kind of moral code uh, is he describes it in, 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 and I quite liked it is as a, as a particular fighting force, a group uh, as a submarine that's floating in this kind of uh, open sea. And, you know, those inside the submarine are part of that ecosystem, but they may not necessarily be aware that they're going off course. Uh, mm. And that, and that uh, I find that particularly interesting and particularly relevant uh, you know, in in today's wars, uh, where we often work in small uh, small teams, you know, it, it's not necessarily front lines uh, as we've come to know them uh, traditionally, but small teams, often special forces, operating in isolation, um, you know, working with it within intent. But I guess that's where I where my conflict lies. I find it difficult to to reconcile that you know that identity won't at some point 
deviate. And we've seen it now in Australia. We're facing, in, it's interesting you mentioned uh, the word warrior. For us, it's a particularly sensitive one at the moment because we have some uh, of our special forces uh, uh, in, in some hot water over potential alleged war crimes in Afghanistan. Uh, and some are, some are saying that this is especially exactly what's happened, that they've kind of deviated because they operated in isolation, uh, and that their identity morphed. And I just can't see how we contest that. That's that, and, and or how do we prevent that? Because it's to me, it's inevitable that in war, you know, you become desensitized to killing, you become desensitized uh, to other people suffering. Fatigue plays a role. Uh, what What are your thoughts on that? Well, when I was teaching the Code of the Warrior at the Naval Academy, one of the most amazing experiences I had was I got to co-teach it for a time with a. Um, Master Chief Navy SEAL named Will Guild, hugely admirable human being, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and someone who I really enjoyed co-teaching with. And he had been someone who had been an instructor at Buds, so had trained SEALs as well as having been uh, an active SEAL himself. So certainly knew whereof he spoke <laughs> when he talked to 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 the midshipmen. And one of the things that I feel like I learned from him and that came through when we had the chance to to talk about this very issue is that, first of all, and I, I, I do like um, Dean Peter Baker's uh, submarine analogy, the, this idea that your identity as a group, uh, whether you want to call that command climate or unit culture or some mix of that, that that can morph over time in a disturbing direction because of the slow grind against mm. uh, all of this this uh, horror that you're experiencing and that you're partaking in that that um, certainly um, troops and special forces uh, see more than most mm. can experience that that this can cause you to have an erosion of these these core values so to come around to your question which will I feel, feel addressed of well, what do you how do we combat that if it's something that we can hardly avoid uh, it, it's a it's a simple but wise point, which is we cannot forget to touch back to these original values, and we have to have what you do see in some of these older um, cultures or historical cultures that I've looked at of warriors who have lived through their own wars, who have been veterans who have experienced all this, being able to come back and talk to those who are in the thick of it right now and reconnect and remind why that identity matters and why those rules are there. And as they do so, to especially emphasize that at that moment, they don't need to be thinking of these rules as there to protect possible victims of course that matters. Of course we don't want there to be atrocities where war crimes are committed and innocent people are killed. But in this context, to make the point instead that we also don't want the kind of damage that happens to the people who commit those acts to happen to them. Mm. Because again, we have asked them to go into these horrible situations. We have asked them to put themselves on the line. And to allow them to be destroyed by what we asked them to do is absolutely a, a failure on our part as well. And by our part, I mean everyone else in the society. Hmm. Uh, it, it is us not fulfilling our end of the obligation back to the people that are, are, are charged with protecting us. So 
the notion that you have constant one after the other rapid deployments where there is no chance to bring people back and allow them to be reminded of what they stand for, to reflect on what they've seen and what it did to them, to process and transition in and out of those roles. We actually need to be a lot more thoughtful about warrior transitions. And there have been some acknowledgments of this. I, I always extol the virtues of the, the work of um, psychiatrist Jonathan Shea, who wrote Achilles in Vietnam and mm. Odysseus in America and other amazing works. But he, I think, articulated it as well as anyone could, the, the notion that the harm, the moral injury that can come to troops can only be mitigated by this very group effort, just as it was a group effort to give them that identity that we've talked about in the first place, as that identity gets beaten up, as that identity gets chipped away, uh, you have to help them restore it. And you can't do that if you're distanced from them. And if you look at things like some of the, the crimes that were committed in conflicts like the, the Vietnam conflict, for example, one of the problems was the sense of being so far away from uh, in in the case of um, American troops, so far away from from their home, uh, that they really didn't feel like they were in the same moral sphere. They really started to feel like it was some other world with maybe other rules. And that is a human reaction, but the only cure for it is to pull them out of there often enough with that very intentional point of reconnecting them to that original identity. Yeah, no, that's yeah, beautifully said, and I, and I think there's so much in what you just said now that, that we could we could pull out. Uh, the thing that particularly struck me is that we as a society bear responsibility to, um, you know, a how we treat them when they come back, but also uh, I suspect is what 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 you're saying is uh, in how we train them and how we send them and how we rotate them and how we manage warfare. Uh, how we manage our warriors. And I'll use that term as intended, as you intend in your book. Uh, so for anyone that's of uh, my listeners that uh, is going to jump at me for this, uh, because as I said in Australia, it's a rather sensitive uh, word at the moment. But this brings me to another point, and I think this is uh, something that I'm still still really wrestling with. It seems to me that we are basically tying the hands of our uh, warriors because we're, and again in Australia's example, we're a small force, uh, we're committed to a war. We need to send rotations. Uh, we don't have sufficient soldiers, basically, to uh, you know give them sufficient respite and so on and so forth. Which which basically begs the question: uh, Are we setting them up for the inevitable? Because we know, again, we know through research, extensive research, uh, uh, that that you know fatigue, desensitization, quote unquote, the fog of war reduces our ability to make ethical decisions. So therefore, we can from that extrapolate that. We ultimately can't expect to go to or send our soldiers to war without them at some point committing something that we might, you know, from the comfort of our officers, determine or call a war crime. That, that's that's where my, that's where I'm I'm, I'm I'm slightly torn. It, it it seems to me like it's a rock and a hard place. We're sending soldiers to do a job, but the circumstances are such that. They are basically, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place. They, they, they can't win either way uh, because the environment itself will slowly chisel them down into uh, something that they don't want to become. 
Well, how, how do yeah. you feel? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think one, one point I would make is that I don't want to sound like I'm making, and, and I don't think you were either, but making excuses for war crimes. No, um, absolutely and, not. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, yeah, didn't yeah. think you were. Yeah. Um, it's more explaining how they, yeah. how they can happen. Yes. And I, I agree with that. I think therefore to pull on the, the point that, that you were um, highlighting there, this idea that it isn't, it shouldn't be only a burden on the troops themselves to, protect them against crossing these lines, it should be on all of us, means that there's some very practical solutions we need to look at that nobody wants to talk about. And what I mean there is you made a wonderful point about if there's too few people, then if you make this commitment with not enough people, you're going to end up overusing them. And then they're going to be pushed to the edge to the point where they're going to do things, which you're going to then turn around and say, you should never have done that. Hmm. but we're we're pushing humans past their limits. So the alternative is to say stuff that no one wants to hear, like, how about a draft? Hmm. If you really hmm. think that this conflict is important enough, then you need enough troops to send to it. And if you don't think that it is worth having a draft, then should we really be there? I'm this giving is- you a silent standing <laughs> ovation right now, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is the hmm. thing. I just... Um, I I find it very frustrating that the conversations not not ours obviously but with a lot of uh, of times that this comes up the conversation just grinds to a halt when you raise this point but in fact that is where the logic goes mm. that if 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 the community if the culture if the nation says we must fight x wherever this first place is um we must fight in Afghanistan we must fight in Iraq and there aren't enough people in the current military to do that in a way that allows them to rotate enough often enough to have the kind of support that I was talking about earlier. Mm. And you are using them. You are violating the a classic. You're violating Immanuel Kant's categorical yeah. imperative. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because using you're treating with, yeah. them as a yes. mere means. Yes, you're, gonna, yeah. you're treating them as a mere means to an end and then throwing them out afterwards. So instead, the obligation does go both ways. And if you either say, we can't field troops for this because it is, in fact, not possible to do so without destroying them, or so you scale back or, you know, you, you cancel the operation or you scale it back in some ways and you bear the political cost of that, or you bear the other political cost, which is you say, we can't do this unless we have more people. And guess what, folks, if we don't get volunteers, that means a draft. That's a, that's so wonderful because that, I think, in itself would immediately change our, and I'm saying our uh, collectively civilian orientation to war. And that's partly what motivates this podcast is that mm. wars happen over there. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can still go and watch my football game. I can still go and, you know, live my regular life, go to work, have my children go, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But war happens over there. Uh, so it's but, – but something like the draft would immediately change that. Uh, and also, dare I say, if we held our leaders, those descendants to war, to the same rules of war that we hold our soldiers to account. So, you know, soldiers are held to, you know, the Condor, Yusin Bello, the Geneva Conventions. But uh, is it a just war to send soldiers to a war that you can't say you have enough troops for? Is that Does that meet, you know, the Yusad Bellum? Uh, is that, you know, what is the probability of success of that mm-hmm. war? Is, is it actually really the last resort? 
Um, mm. And I think when we start infusing, and this is where, and again, this is why I'm perhaps reacting uh, and what's motivating me to, to try and explore these questions. I mean, I'm a child of the Bosnian War. Um, mm. Where and, and I was on the receiving end, so to speak. So you know, mm. uh, the genos- the victims of the genocide, and so on, uh, which mm-hmm. is a huge area of of, of desensitization. But even so, I'm still mm. torn with because I can. And it's hard even to say this, but I can almost empathise uh, with the other side, so to speak, uh, because they were victims of their own propaganda and their own uh, erosion of their own code of conduct. Uh, and again, I, I just want to emphasize what you said. I definitely do not condone the conduct <laughs> of any kind of war crimes. And I think we need to uh, have people face, uh, have trials and so on so that it, it serves as ha- its, its deterrent function, which I'm sure it does. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm still torn with this, with this uh, kind of inevitability of it. You know, I, I find it an, an illusion that we can tell to ourselves, say to ourselves that we can go to war without ultimately conducting war crimes in current circumstances, like what we just talked about, you know, where we have not enough soldiers, we have uh, um, continuous rotations and so on. One thing that's particularly, oh, sorry, you were going to say something? Uh, well, I, yeah, you may please. have been about to go the same place I was. I <laughs> I was just thinking that um, the, the other factor, which I know you've thought about because uh, um, you and I talked about it briefly before this uh, podcast, is that in in some of these conflicts, the other factor, and arguably this goes all the way back through history too, is the um, horror that can be felt at what the other side does, and that mm. um, that can chip away at these identities that we build up too, and I don't think we should ever uh, minimize the effect of that either. Yeah, and, and I mean, and, and and also I think this kind of goes down to the path of how how easy how how malleable our moral commitments to this notion of, of, of uh, uh, conduct and war is uh, when the stakes are high enough. And again, Walter speaks about this, you know, paraphrasing um, was a Churchill with the, with the supreme emergency. When our culture, when our identity, when our nationhood, when us as a people are at uh, seeming risk of our annihilation, all gloves are off. So it's okay to drop nukes. It's okay to uh, flatten Dresden and so on, which looking at it now is hugely immoral, arguably. Yeah. Uh, but it's it just goes to show that, you know, even we, the civilized society, and this is only, you know, 70 odd years ago. It's not even – let's not even talk about Guantanamo Bay. Let's not even talk about <laughs> – but you know what I mean? I mean, it's a, it's it's mm-hmm. such a it's, – it's so fluid. Um but but also this maybe brings me to a point that we again also briefly touched on, uh, that is our own and, and I'll use the term uh, collateral damage estimates. But uh, something that uh, you yourself said you're not comfortable discussing from a legal perspective, but more from the ethical. What I understand it to be is that you know we and this is a NATO standard as well that there are certain calculations and there's certain ways that we can um, estimate values. You know what. Uh, to what extent we're willing to accept collateral damage, in other words, civilian casualties, mm-hmm. uh, to prosecute some sort of a military objective. Uh, and there are these mm-hmm. calculations, and it could be, as an example, you know, we are willing to accept, uh, I don't know, five civilian casualties to prosecute this particular uh, ISIS leader. How, how, how do we <laughs> justify that ethically, which we do, I understand we do, but how, how does that sit with you as a military ethicist? Well, 
it's a it's a nice transition from your reference there to to uh, Michael Walzer and his his claims about supreme emergency, which I I too have some big problems with, mm, yeah. uh, and the idea that at some point the gloves are off. One of the the main problems that we're dealing with here when you start talking about how much collateral damage is too much and. Of course, you're talking about their the death of people that ought to be protected, that people who who were not part of this contract, so to speak, that that um, combatants have with one another, and the um, the justification which we know of, uh, which again has deep roots and goes goes back to natural law theory and so forth, uh, is this idea of a doctrine of double effect that you have if you're achieving a worthwhile and justified end that that sometimes it is permissible. It's, by the way, never mandatory or laudable, but it may be permissible to cause harms in, in achieving that. But even the doctrine of double effect has some really strict restrictions in it, including things like you can't, the the killing of the innocents, for example, can't be the means to the end. So if you think of something like uh, the, the 9-11 attacks taking a civilian plane and, and flying it into even a military target, that crosses those lines because you've used the civilians as the weapon. It's not that they were caught in the middle of something. It's you actually used them as, as the means. And that that's not allowed even under those kind of calculations. But the classic example that you gave is you're trying to kill, say, one ISIS leader. And in order to, to uh, take out his vehicle or the building that he's in, you can quite clearly predict that a certain number of civilians will be killed. Again, there are these other restrictions, like you should you should do whatever you can to see if there's a way to clear the civilians. But but we all know there's going to be, and there have been, actually I'll say there always are, mm. uh, in every conflict, many cases where the civilians are, are sacrificed for these other goals. And how do we feel about that? I mean, one response to that, that that many people naturally have is to simply say that that all wars is evil, full stop. Mm. You know, just that's, mm. that's the end because there's never been a war in which innocents weren't killed. So it is overall an evil. Mm. And then you have the conversation becomes, well, is it a necessary evil that we can't yeah. get away from? I, I I don't mean to laugh, but it's that kind of laugh or cry yeah. kind of moment yeah, yeah, where you right. say, well, what do you do then with it? Uh, because, you know, the the you're then stuck in this path of, well, if you don't want to allow for any collateral damage because there's no bottom line way to justify it that doesn't sound like a legal wrangling trick, uh, then then you end up as a pacifist. But then what are you going to allow uh, certain other kinds of evil to just proceed uh, without impediment because you can't take up arms. And that doesn't mm. seem like the right answer either, at least to mm. a lot of us. And mm. that's why I end up, as so many do, in the just war tradition that I, I think, I you know, I wish I could be a pacifist, but I don't think the world allows it. Yeah. Uh, and, no, uh, you're right. And I agree. Yeah. You know, I just, I can't be. So, uh, so at that point, the question is very narrow and and quite... I guess I'll say quite quite ugly and 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 raw because you are again then saying, okay, if you're committing to do this, how much are you willing to stand? Uh, mm. You mentioned cases like you know firebombing Dresden and and how as we look back on that we say you know that that's not okay that was too far. Um, there there was a retaliatory vengeance element to that 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 doesn't that doesn't meet these bars, but 
where where is the line and how mobile is it? Mm. And I find myself coming around to the point that, first of all, you're absolutely right, as you said earlier, that there has to be more emphasis put on getting us into some of these situations in the first place and the obligation to go through the other steps of the just war tradition before you ever get to this point. Uh, and then once you get to this point, there has to be a tremendous amount of, of seriousness and good faith around looking for alternatives. And, and there, and this I know is somewhat controversial, but there I think you cannot privilege the lives of your own troops. Hmm. It's very uncomfortable. There's a lot of language around force protection, but I, I do think you actually do have to put civilian lives on both sides uh, ahead of troops. So if there's two options and one puts troops at greater risk, but lowers the, the, the number of civilian casualties, you're under obligation to go for that one hmm. as opposed yeah. to the one that, that, uh, um, you know, you may be able to conduct from, from, uh, from an unoccupied vehicle, uh, mm. but an unmanned vehicle. But in fact, in doing that, you are upping the odds of, of uh, civilian casualties. So I think I end up landing in that necessary evil place where if you've in, embraced a necessary evil, you certainly don't want it to be any larger than it has to be. You want to minimize that as much as possible. No, I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm in stark agreement with you. In, 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 in stark agreement, that's not, that's not a phrase. I'm in a whole agreement with you. That <laughs> <laughs> works for me. <laughs> I got my, my, my words confused there for a second. But, um, and, and I recall even being one of the few that argued that very point in our own ethics training during the uh, going through my military training at our college. Uh, this kind of, uh, you know, is it worth, do you put your soldiers at greater harm than the civilians? And and, and like you rightly said, it's uh, not necessarily a popular opinion because most, uh, I think still even now, would say, well, no, of course I'm going to protect my soldiers. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's there's a, an ethical question there that I think needs to be explored. The other thing that's really interesting here for me is that, and you've made that point uh, as we started the conversation. You talked about interests versus uh, morality, uh, or you know even even values. We often go to war, and certainly in Australia, it's become you know, open. We we discuss it quite openly and freely. That, for example, we went to Iraq uh, purely for the alliance with the US. Mm. Uh, that, that, that's a that's a that's not classified. That's not <laughs> in, in any way is it uh, even a, a thing that we're embarrassed to say. It is now publicly uh, stated in many books and, and, and in open mm. discussions. And I've had one of my guests on talk about that very recently. He was a prominent uh, academic in, in in this particular field. Now, and 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 this is uh, you know. Rather than so we we're pursuing some national interest rather than protecting or promoting certain values, uh, which is this kind of clash between interests uh, versus values of morality. And again, we hold our soldiers, you know, to account for upholding certain values, uh, but again, not our leaders. And I think this is a this is a continuous problem uh, that we seem to be not really willing to address. Uh, and I think you made that point again. Is a, and I think it's important to to emphasize that point that that's something that we should really start doing. But how do we how do we do that when those who send us to war are basically elected every four years, three years, depending on where we are, uh, five years in some places doesn't matter, and off they go. They go into their retirement. Mm -hmm. They basically do make these decisions without impunity. I mean, how do we actually do this? I mean, we can't drag former presidents or prime ministers, uh, you know, in front of tribunals 
uh, or, or, or no, can, some would like to. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, is it, I mean, is that something that's you, you know, like where do you sit on that? Well, I mean, I I think something has to change because if anything, in in my um, life and in the time that I've spent working on these topics, I feel like it's gotten worse. And and I I say that reluctantly, but I really do feel like that there's a sense that the casualness with which uh, some um, political leadership chooses to spend our blood and treasure, our, our um, lives uh, and, and other, um, and I, I, the treasure part, while not as important as the lives matters too. I mean, we spent trillions of dollars on, on these conflicts and that's money that doesn't go to mm. education or infrastructure or something else it could go to. Mm. Um, all of those choices are made too often by people who don't seem to recognize the full weight of them. Uh, I I find that very painful as someone who has lost people I, I care de- deeply for. Mm. And, and I feel like in many cases, they would be extremely discouraged. Were they still alive, they would be extremely discouraged to see where we are now and yeah. wonder what their sacrifice was for. So, you know, all of that is to say, that I think the only recourse we have in in democracies is voting, uh, is insisting that people are held to higher standards. I don't think we've done a great job of that. Uh, There is the possibility of the international community judging some of these leaders, but that's incredibly hard to pull off. And once you're dealing with countries that are on the Security Council and so forth, your odds of getting anywhere are extremely, extremely low. And we know that. So it does come down to the sense of people learning more and having uh, coming into it with a bit more knowledge about what war does to people before they vote, before they make choices. I, I was able one year at, um, at my current position at Case Western Reserve to share uh, a, um, a message that was written from one of my former students from the Naval Academy, who was now uh, still in, at the time, he was still in the Marine Corps. And it was uh, leading up to an election. It wasn't the most recent one, but it was leading up to an election. Mm-hmm. And it was very apolitical. He wasn't taking any partisan side, but he asked me um, if I could share it. And I was delighted to do so with my, with my mostly civilian students, mm. very, very, very uh, majority civilian students. And the message was to not forget about him and the others who were deployed Mm. all over the world. It was the message was, as you vote, you probably have a lot of things and I'm I'm paraphrasing, but you you probably have a lot of things that you're considering and uh, that weigh on you when you when you go to to the ballot. But amongst those things, please recognize that the people you are giving power to are going to decide where my friends and I are going to fight and die. Hmm. And please think about that as part of the, the choice you're making as part of what you're deciding. And it was, it was a wonderful discussion that we had after that in, in particular because I I was pleased with how my students were quite honest about admitting they hadn't thought Hmm. about that. I mean, I obviously in a perfect world, we wish they had, but, but at least they were very forthcoming about, acknowledging that this had not been part of their 
their thinking and their calculations. Just what you mentioned earlier, they felt so distanced hmm. from the military and um, so disconnected. And that civil military uh, gap, the wider that gets, the more worrisome that can be. Uh, and people aren't thinking that these people that we're putting in power are going to potentially make uh, this level of, of, of choice for, for men and women who are obligated to follow it. And, and of course, in the U.S., we don't even have um, selective conscientious objection. Hmm. So they are, they are obligated. I had a, a dear friend who uh, objected to the Iraq war in 2003 and actually uh, protested out of uniform was, you know, took part in marches against mm. it, uh, but went. And uh, unfortunately, this is not a happy story. He died there mm. uh, on um, actually really close to the anniversary. He died on June 25th, 2003. Um, and, you know, he went because his Marines went. And so for him, it was not a decision. You know, you, of course he was going because the people that, that mm. he had that identity with were going. But he very much would have preferred not to have been sent to that conflict. And he would have loved to have had his his voice maybe amplified in some yeah. way. Yeah. And that's so real. That is so real. And it's, uh, I mean, you know, Australia has lost 44 soldiers in combat in Afghanistan, which, you know, by comparison to U.S. and the U.K., especially U.S., is, 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 is it pales in comparison, really. Um, but I think this goes to a point that you brought up earlier and, 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 you know, you mentioned suicide as well. We've lost, you know, more than 500 soldiers to suicide since, since, um, you know, that war. Uh -huh. And, and I wonder whether that is part of it, you know, this kind of, cause I would suspect, and unfortunately he, he died obviously in 2003, but, you know, he went into a war that he didn't really believe in. Uh -huh. I wonder to what extent that plays a role in, this kind of idea of moral injury or why subsequently our soldiers, certainly not all, but maybe some choose to take their lives and they carry some guilt of, could you know, partaking in something that they don't believe was, you know, just or the right thing to do. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, again, the, the, those who work on moral injury, like Jonathan Shea and others have highlighted this, the set, I think Shea calls it the, just the, the blunt betrayal of what's right that they just can't get past that. But, but again, from, from unfortunate personal uh, connection, um, wonderful man. I, I knew a colleague, uh, Ted Westhusing, who taught at West Point uh, did take his own life in Iraq and in his, we don't have to speculate. He left a note and, and in his note um, he, he literally said uh, death before any further dishonor and the dishonor he spoke about in the note had to do with what he saw as um, inappropriate relationships with, with the U S and, and private contractors and money-making attempts and so forth. He just, he felt that he was not any longer confident that he was part of an honorable endeavor. Mm. And this is someone who believes so strongly in that, that he had taught it. And so it just, the, 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 um, the, the definite sense of um, disconnect that he experienced clearly uh, played a role. 
mm. uh, in in his um, mental. It almost health resembles, um, and I'm, I forget the official term, but the colloquial term of, and you talk about it in the book of, of the Japanese harakiri, of the the, the noble, uh, you know, suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost echoes of that. Um, it does. And, and, it and absolutely it, does. The the uh, the suicide that is a form of protest. Mm. That that is, you know, I cannot partake of this anymore. That this, if I'm part of this, then then I'm sullied by it, and so you know, I'm mm. I'm out. Then, and we don't want to push anyone to that point, and we want to make sure that we give paths back for people who are starting to feel that way, and don't leave them just hanging out there with those kind of feelings uh, to to battle them alone, because that, again, is part of us failing our obligations. Yeah, yeah. hugely powerful stuff. And, and again, this is triggered in my mind what you mentioned earlier, and, and I certainly don't mean to draw a, a, an obvious correlation here, but it, it just popped into my mind, the, the, the fine line uh, between a warrior and a murderer. And it, it strikes me as though, in some instances, maybe for our warriors, uh, that they feel that they might have crossed that line inadvertently, and that's that's ultimately what uh, we're talking about here. It's the it's the you know it's it's a conscientious objection to being part of this. Um, mm-hmm. what, what did you say? Death uh, before dishonor. Yeah, uh, it strikes me as um, I've got goosebumps because it it, it 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 strikes me as something that very well you know could be a, a a real thing that our soldiers are facing and that we're not talking about. We're not, and I think uh, a word I mentioned a moment ago, which for some people it, it's going to invoke religious connotations, and I, I don't mean that in this context, mm. But, mm. but the word redemption, mm. I think that we don't talk enough about the fact that something has to happen next to pull yourself out of these circumstances. So often the conversation, and, and my field is guilty of this in, to some degree, military ethics and other ethics areas sometimes fall prey to this. They stop at the failure they stop at the crime or the or the line crossing and and then start talking about well why did that happen and why shouldn't it have happened i want to talk about what happens next because a lot of people who are otherwise good are going to find themselves under the kind of conditions that we talked about earlier mm. maybe crossing some of those lines and genuinely regretting it and wanting to not embrace it and become that person Hmm. but nobody talks to them about well what do i do now you know i have done something that violates my core values do i just throw them all out do i say this is that's it i'm done you know now i'll just i suppose guess i'm a murderer now i'm just going to be a murderer that is what some people do and it's very sad and destructive it's very self-destructive but what can happen instead is this intentional journey of redemption where you say yes I did cross that line and I wish I hadn't and I can't take it back, but I still care about the line. I still think it was a line to draw. It should have been drawn and I still believe in it. So how do I build back my sense of being part of this original identity and what do I need to contribute or do or what conversations do I need to have to the point where I feel uh, some sense of redemption? And one of the historical things, which I, I, found so fascinating in my research. A fellow named uh, Bernard Verkamp wrote about this and uh, was, was so interesting to learn about. In the Middle Ages, there were knights who returned from things like the Crusades, where, as we know, some horrible stuff happened, uh, who actually 
fought with the church at the time because the church was telling them, you're absolved, you're fine, you don't mm. need to do anything. And they were saying, I don't feel fine. I don't feel like I'm okay with God right now. I need you to mm. give me some acts of atonement. I need you to tell me how to work off this sense of guilt that I feel. Mm. And I, I think so far too often, and it's often well-meaning people, will just simply say, oh, you shouldn't feel guilty. You know, you did what you had to do. You shouldn't feel bad. Mm. You can't just will it away. You can't just tell someone don't feel bad. If they feel guilty, if they feel that burden, if they feel that they crossed a line, that's the end of it. That's the truth for them. And so the next thing you say is, okay, how do we help you work through that feeling and start to respect yourself again and, and build yourself back to the person that you were trying to be? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it strikes me as though it echoes uh, of that supreme emergency again, you know, it's a, it, it, you, you did what you had to do, you know, your nation called upon you and you sacrificed your humanity so that we may live on. Uh, but when that's, uh, when that doesn't hold much mm. water, uh, as in some of these recent wars, then, uh, then it becomes a very difficult thing to, to, to justify. Um, but th that also just, just coming back on, on, on the supreme emergency, because there was something that I wanted to, 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 to touch on that, that slipped me before. I mean, we, we have an ability to rationalize mm -hmm. supreme emergency, and we have done that uh, uh, even in recent conflicts. Uh, and, I, and I made mention earlier of, you know, Guantanamo Bay, of, of, of torture, of, of, of black sites and so on. And, and, and I think uh, U.S. has copped uh, a lot of uh, criticism around the world for that. Uh, in some, some ways, it was, uh, it was even justified, I think, uh, or, or argued for. Uh, politically, I think your Supreme Court uh, squashed it and so on. Uh, but it's you know Guantanamo Bay is still there, uh, mm -hmm. and where, where arguably these quote unquote terrorists exist outside of the uh, traditional rules of war because they are uh, considered, uh, uh, I guess, terrorists. Where are we with that now, in your view? I mean, how do we, particularly in this kind of ongoing war on terror, that you know will be with us? I suspect for a while yet, even though we're pulling out of all the major conflict areas, is that is that a different kind of enemy that doesn't? And currently, I think if I if I understand it correctly, there's no uh, international law to really dictate how we are to you know whether they're classed uh, as you know uh, combatants in a true sense that they are then therefore afforded the same rights as uh, you know prisoners of war in 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 other state on state conflicts how do you view that and what's your do you know the state of affairs uh, well i mean the the, the easy, easy question state of affairs here. is a mess yeah no yeah. nice light easy question but actually what what i was going to open with is um that that simply i i feel the need to just say flat out that I, I think we got it wrong. And and what I mean by the we, there is a very collective we, because I think the international community didn't mm. didn't um hold it up either. And and certainly uh the US made extraordinarily questionable um decisions and ones that were not just questionable but flat out wrong. So what I'm getting at is myself personally, I was never comfortable and I remain uncomfortable uh with this 
new category that we created. Now there's arguments that there's historical roots for it and and so forth and that the Geneva Conventions didn't cover certain types of combatants which that part certainly true but but the spirit of the just war tradition was I think violated by having this notion of enemy combatants that aren't really prisoners of war and aren't falling into another camp. I would prefer to see if if a group is like Al Qaeda or ISIS is more like a uh, criminal organization, like the mafia or something, then treat them that way. Treat them like criminals, which means, by the way, they have certain rights as criminals mm. do. Treat them that way and be consistent. Or if you want to say that it's we're past this notion of mere statehood, there are some non-state actors that organize and conduct themselves close enough to the way states are that we need to treat them like regular combatants, and then they get the rights that come with being a POW. Those two categories have their own history, and I guess I would say, in a sense, were refined over time and and, uh, trial and error and mistakes that were made and what we learned from it. And to throw all that out the window and say, "Mm, no, they don't fit in either of those categories. Let's make a new one where there are no rules or I'm just going to create uh, uh, things out of thin air was was a terrible, terrible st- mistake and one that we haven't really found our way out of yet. We're still, what do you then do? You have people now at uh, still at Guantanamo that no one in this country wants to take them. So if you say, you know, well, let's move them to a prison in X state, the state will say, oh, no, thanks. You know, we, mm, we don't want yeah. them. Uh, so you've, you've sort of created this no-win situation where um, – you, you, because you made them this odd category, they are neither criminal nor um, captured troops. So what do you do with them? Whereas before, those those two buckets did at least give you some answers and some answers that had some humanity to them. Mm-hmm. Because I I have to say it was so depressing as a military ethicist and just as a person to see the erosion that went along with what was going on at, at the height of like the Abu Ghraib situation, yeah. um, having what is obviously torture uh, renamed in this Orwellian way as enhanced interrogation, you know, all of that just again, chipped away at stuff that matters. You know, in a sense, we've come all the way full circle because we started with the idea of you know, why do warriors need a code and, and they need to have an identity that does draw those lines for them and they need it to be real because in the worst day of their life, they need to believe in it and they need to know that it's there for them and that they are part of something that matters because that's going to be so hard to hold on to. So if you chip away at it, if you start to pull that rug out from under them to mix metaphors, you are making it harder for our troops to survive with any sanity or, or, you know, with, with fewer moral injuries. And I, I find it really quite sad that it is sometimes the people who shout the loudest about support our troops and stuff like that, who also want to see these rules eroded because they're wrong. That doesn't support our troops. It puts them at greater risk of moral injury. It puts them at greater literal risk by creating more future enemies for us. It is not how you support our troops. Yeah, I mean, the idea of taking the gloves off, I mean, it ultimately makes us the same as those that we're seeking to fight, <laughs> except exactly. except we don't grant them the same 
uh, nobility. Uh, we view them as the enemy, but arguably they might be also, from their perspective, sacrificing uh, civilians for a greater purpose, for uh, you know, sacrificing themselves for a greater purpose, crossing the lines of humanity for a greater purpose, which is just the mirror, ultimately, of what we do um, if we don't uh, seek to uphold those values because ultimately it's a, it's a sliding scale downwards um, that ends up uh, – you know, and, and again, I guess it would contribute to we that. both end up at the bottom then. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. And we it's have no moral high ground. Bottom. Yeah, we lose our moral high ground and therefore the, the argument of, you know, interest versus values, but it's no longer an, uh, an, an argument anymore because we've given up, given up our values. So let's at least pursue our interests. Uh, which, <laughs> and I'll add too, just in that context of that awful race to the bottom that can happen, that can happen and does happen. It is also the case that sometimes we will fight, we have fought people whose whose values and behavior uh, ultimately can't be justified. You know, I'm not going to justify, you know, beheading prisoners and of things course, like yeah. some of the things ISIS has done, for example. Uh, but again, to to feed off of what you were just saying, the very thought that you would look at that and say, okay, let's just dump our values then and be more like that. Mm, that mm. How is that? The, you know, I just, yeah. it's so funny because when you put it that starkly, it's so obviously not the right answer and yet people slide into it so easily they say oh well you know you got to fight fire with fire and it's like Mm. that's not actually how it works if something is so horrifying that you think it needs to be wiped off the face of the earth then maybe don't be like that yeah yeah exactly and yeah that's that's the idea of fighting evil with evil which we hear so often um you know particularly from some of our most hardened and perhaps because of that reason that they're the most hardened, they're also the most desensitized and, and, and also the most injured, so to speak. Um, you know, we often hear that you have to fight evil with evil. Um, it's, uh, it's, we it's, failed it's, those people. We yeah, really yeah, have. yeah, I, I, I could agree. That's on us. I, I'm conscious also of our time that we're coming close to our kind of uh, hard right shoulder, but I just uh, want to <laughs> maybe take us out of some of this. <laughs> darkness um <laughs> and, and also allow us both to take a breath because I, I i was absolutely fascinated by everything you've said and i and i thank you for being so candid and so open about it but i also note that uh and i've read elsewhere that you've uh, really started exploring the idea of artificial intelligence and military ethics as it um deals with artificial intelligence mm-hmm. what, what what in particular is your kind of direction or focus and and and, and where you're at with that well i'm i'm very interested in this area because there's uh, another kind of arms race happening where uh, many, many countries are feeling this pressure uh, because of what they see happening in places like like China and Russia and so forth to develop artificial intelligence and 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 uh, high tech advances in automation to to make sure that we're not going to find ourselves. Uh, in in other nations like the U.S., far behind uh, and behind the curve on on what is the the next great wave in in military tech, and and for me, there's there's a couple things I tend to focus on. One is I'm extremely wary of that kind of mentality, of that arms race mentality. Uh, people get sick of hearing this from me, but I make the joke that um, 
hey guys, sometimes it's the second mouse that gets the cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I think I say that to everyone because I just, I love that it makes people stop and think because you actually go through it in your mind. You go, well, what is she? Oh yeah. The first mouse is dead. Yeah. Mm, mm, (laughs) And the cheese is still sitting there, but the trap is sprung. But in, in this case, what I mean by that is that when we introduce elaborate new technology in particular, we are also introducing new points of failure and we're introducing new ways that, that clever people on the other side of a conflict are going to uh, manipulate, exploit, find their ways around. As soon as we deploy something, someone's going to figure out how to take advantage of it. Hmm. So none of these new technologies I think should be seen as any kind of silver bullet or definite definitely giving an unstoppable advantage to any side. So I talk about that a lot that, again, if you look at history, it is not the case that the highest tech side wins every conflict. In fact, we can name a lot of really famous ones Mm, (laughs) where the lower tech side won. Well, Uh, well, the most recent one, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's awkward, isn't it? It's like, oh, yeah, I wonder what we could be talking about. Um, So, you know, it it doesn't, it it is foolish. And I think it's a kind of foolishness we can't afford to think that these these high tech things are are solutions. But that said, I'm also not anti-tech. I think that there are ways that we just need to think And a lot of good people are already doing this, but we need to think in terms of it as augmenting us, not replacing us. Mm. So ways that that there there are ways that we can use tools if they're well-designed and if they're well-trained and get me started on biased data and all the mess Mm. that we have with all of that. But, you know, if you can actually build things well in the first place, there might be ways that we can improve what we're already trying to do, that we can help humans do what they need to do in these conflicts in ways that are actually useful. But that needs to be very deliberately done. And I want to be part of that conversation and try to get away from this, oh, we just need to react to what what our um, enemies or future anticipated enemies might be hmm. working on. I mean, is it conceivable that we use artificial intelligence in the very – to, to assist us with the very things we talked about, you know, to, 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 um, whether through, I don't know, machine learning or just huge data points that it starts identifying, hold on, you are, you know, soldier XYZ, you are at risk of, uh, uh moral injury or you are at risk of, uh, stepping over the line. Uh, is that, is that <laughs> something that's even, you know, in, in, in the scope of discussions or this is, this is absolutely part of the conversation. And um, uh, another thing that I, I often raise and I'm, I am only partly kidding uh, is um, for those of us old enough to recall the old Microsoft word used to have a little (laughs) electronic helper named Clippy. It would pop up and it was a little paperclip. I'm in that camp. (laughs) Yay. I'm glad. Gen X represent. That's right. Um, That's right. But, um, you know, it would pop up and it would say, oh, you seem to be writing a memo. Would you like some help with that? I love the idea that we could build assistance and tools that that would do that kind of thing. Like, you know, you you seem to have not slept in 72 hours. Mm. You you seem to be, um, you know, making this. Would you like to consider these other possibilities? Would you like to, uh, you know, you're about to use this weapon on this. Have you considered this? Because we do know, and there's some fascinating research around there are ways to interrupt the thought process of a person that is heading towards 
let's call it an ethical disaster that that really make a difference, that there's a moment of pause that if you can create it, people will snap out of it. People mm. will will take a step back and say, oh, wow, what was I thinking? Well, it's physiological yeah. responses. And it's interesting you used the word snap because I, I, I've just ordered the the book, Why We Snap by Douglas Fields. Uh, I've listened to an interesting <laughs> podcast with him. You know, that there are physiological reasons, and we know this, that there are physiological reasons why we quote unquote snap. And it's out <laughs> of our control oftentimes. Mm-hmm. It's almost like someone's wound us up and we are almost like a robot ourselves where we kind of go, oh my God, what came over me? Um, and I think that's a, you know, if AI and interrupting can, that process yeah. is worth doing. If we can yeah, figure absolutely. out how to interrupt it with a tool, then yeah. I'm all for it. That's wonderful. Uh, and I think you're, am I correct in saying that you're also drafting a book? Uh, I at am. The moment? Yes. Um, and then the working title is artificial ethics question mark. <laughs> How wonderful is that? And and if and if I may humbly say, if it's anything like the code of uh, the warrior, then I will uh, certainly look I'll look forward to devouring that one as well. Um, oh, thank you, thank you so much, Shannon. I know we're 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 very close to 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 our heart shoulder now, so I just want to really thank you for giving me so much of your time for speaking so candidly about topics that are exceptionally important to our warriors, to our militaries, to our conscience i think uh, as a civilization not just as soldiers but i think it's something that we need to really start peeling back uh, back on and, and exploring in more depth uh, and as someone who aspires to to in the near future delve deeper into these questions i certainly look forward to reaching out again and uh, perhaps inviting you for a second episode because i think there's uh, lots more that we can uh, discuss and particularly as you uh, uh, sharpen your ideas on artificial intelligence and how that Uh, impacts military ethics. So thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And I I actually would like to return the compliment uh, quite sincerely. I am grateful for what you are doing with this podcast. And I'm going to catch up on any episodes that I've missed. And I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of it. So thank you so much for having me on. That's wonderful. Thank you for saying that. And uh, we'll be in touch. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.